0: One of the most common difficulties, problems for people raised in Christian families, raised in the church, is that we often take the gifts of God for granted, gifts from God. We don't see, we don't see that all the good things that we've been given, every bit also of clear thinking, the fact that we can think clearly about right and wrong, all that flows from Jesus as Lord. Clarity of thought about the world flows from Jesus as Lord, not just the stuff he gives. All of that hinges on him. And we just take that for granted because that's what we grow up with. We grow up with clarity, clarity being offered to us. And I will take myself as an example. Growing up, I accepted what my parents... There they are. Sorry. Sorry. I accepted what they taught. I accepted what the church taught. I understood good and evil. I understood the lines, right and wrong. And everything was fine until I began to want evil, until I began to want to fit comfortably in my culture. But still, and this was the quandary, still, I fully accepted what I was taught. I fully accepted what I knew from home and church was truth. But I wanted evil. I wanted to fit comfortably. And so in that quandary of competing desire, competing desire, powers of evil were ready. Right there, ready to offer a simple path. And this, was, this was the path. Yes, it's all true. It's all true. Yes, what your church teaches is true. What your parents teach, it's true. Everything Jesus said and did, true. Way back then, way back then, evil offered me the path of distance, history, Separation. So it was all true back then, but what happened then has little bearing on now, has little bearing on my desires, little bearing on my actions. So evil offered me this idea, yeah, accept what your parents teach, accept what the church taught. It's true back then. Live now, for now for your desires. Jesus was Savior. I never doubted that Jesus was Savior. Not for a minute. Jesus was Savior. In fact, that was a very convenient truth. But He was a Savior at a great remove. The ascension is what had no hold on me. It had no hold on my thoughts. It had no hold on my affections. What I mean is the exalted Jesus never entered thoughts. I liked Jesus in the manger. I liked Jesus on the cross. That means forgiveness. But I had no time for Jesus as Lord. Living Lord, alive, reigning, right now, ruling in power. That was me. And that is common. And that is a common snare of the enemy. James Reblado helpfully preached last week about this risen Lord, the reality of this risen exalted Lord, pictured for us in Revelation chapter one, the exalted King Jesus. This is the one with whom we have to do. It's the opening foundational message of Revelation. Jesus Christ is the Lord, and He simply is himself. He is the great I am. And he's still and he always remains the Lord. Always remains the ruling Lord. And he will one day reveal himself fully. But in the meantime, he reveals himself to us gradually in disrupting ways, in reforming ways, showing us that how we had gotten comfortable, oh, there's actually more to him. Gradually, he reveals himself because he wants to change us. He wants to change us to be like him. He doesn't want to be distant. He he is not just this person from 2,000 years ago or depending where you are in history, 1,000 years ago. He's alive. And he reveals himself. And so when I say that he wants to change us to be like him, I do mean each of us individually. He wants to change us. But he also wants to change families of faith, households of faith, households of faith. And because he does that, he wants to to change us so that we'll bear witness to who he really is. Not just our favorite imagined form, but who he really is. He isn't just distant Savior and now cosmic butler. Bring me the good stuff I want. Wanting us to have our every desire. He's Savior and Lord, offering the gift of life individually to households To household now because this message is for whole communities of faith that he wants to shape people with him as who he is Jesus gives the Apostle John messages for local churches so please if you haven't opened the Bible open the Bible we're in Revelation chapter 2 we begin these messages to whole church communities where Jesus is revealing and confronting because he wants to change us. And I quickly want to state my interpretive lens on these. Um, I'll, I'll come back to this in the future, but there are different ways to read Revelation. By the way, we are not coming to Revelation because I think that the world's about to end and that... Maybe that's true. That's not my impulse here. Um, So yes, these these letters were sent to real actual local churches. And each of them was facing unique problems from the first century. Unique forms of disruption, danger. But whenever God speaks in, in particular ways, it's God speaking truth. And truth always has purchase. that is, it will always last. A truth spoken here will also be continually true. God, God doesn't speak just particularly when God says something true. It's always true. So just as Jesus died, not only for the people of Israel, he didn't just die for Jews or, or that ancient period, that death is for people of all time. Just so, his words to particular churches are words for churches. They go on and on. So every time a church finds itself in a similar position to one of these, there is truth for them here that holds. It has relevance again and again and again. So after Jesus revealed himself to his old friend John... In a new and unfamiliar way there in chapter 1, he begins with a message for the church that's geographically closest to the island of Patmos where John's sitting as he's having this vision. It's geographically closest. He still can't see it. I've sometimes heard, oh yeah, John, he could just look look up and he could see these seven churches. No. Ephesus is 60 miles away. Human eyes don't see that far. So Ephesus, 60 miles from Patmos, the letters then work their way around in an arc, moving north, then back west, then southwest, and that is a road. So the letters are given in an order by which a courier might have taken them. And the king begins by saying, write this letter to the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Most church teaching through the history of the church has been that the recipient here, this angel or messenger of Ephesus, it must mean the human leader of the congregation. Because if God wants to speak to an angel he does so face to face the exalted jesus speaks face to face to his fiery messengers if he's going to speak to humans human recipients he uses an apostle is a human instrument human apostles to write scripture to human recipients so to this messenger of the church to this angel of the church of ephesus It's fine if you want to think that he's writing to a fiery messenger. I don't think that's the case. I think he is intending this for the leader of the congregation. But regardless, important regardless, the emphasis here is on the speaker, is on Jesus, who's giving this message, the one who holds the messengers in his hand and walks among the lampstands. That's who he's saying. Ephesus, this is a message from that one. And as we saw in chapter 1, the lampstands are the churches. So the living Lord Jesus reminds Ephesus, and he reminds the churches, he walks among them. He's not at a distance. He's not removed. And so bringing that to right now, Let's just take a moment and acknowledge the Lord Jesus walks in this room. He's here. He walks in this room. He's not removed. And your life is in his hand. My life is in his hand as he is here. And then he says, I know the things that you do, or I know your works, or I know your deeds. This is reassurance. I know. I know. He walks among us, and He knows. Today, He knows. It's reassurance. I've seen. I know. I know your works. I know your toil, your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. You care about the truth. I know that you care about the truth. Later, he, he commends them for rejecting the Nicolaitans, a certain false teaching we'll look at in Pergamum. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I know. Jesus knows the great difficulties that these Ephesian Christians have been facing. Ephesus was one of the largest urban centers in Asia Minor, a a chief economic center. It's a coastal city, and there was a large Jewish presence there. In the first century, especially, Jews who rejected Jesus as the Christ, so they, they, they heard about this way, they heard about this one who claimed to be the Christ, they were at pains to distance themselves from the followers of Jesus. Jews wanted, wanted the Romans. They wanted the surrounding, if they were in a colony, they wanted their society to know, we are not with them. Their main effort was to convince the local authorities that Christians were actively undermining Roman society. These Christians are undermining, especially the attack was Roman households. They are destroying the family. They were elevating a new Lord against Caesar. These are dangerous and they are not us. They they are not us. Jews, by contrast, had a long-established status within the Roman Empire. They had a permitted status to not sacrifice to the emperor. Uh, They had permission to not participate in civic religion. They They were their own thing. So in short, the Jews' message was, we're submissive, we're cooperative, the Christians are against Roman society. You need to deal with them. And so this accusation got a lot of traction in areas like Ephesus, places where there was a large Jewish population along with a center of pagan worship. So it was a a situation where the Jews could say, look, they are not us, and look, they are not participating in civic religion. They're not participating in civic life. Ephesus was just such a place Because there was a temple to Artemis, Roman Diana, in that place. That was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Massive, massive temple complex. All of economic life flowed in and out of that temple to Artemis. It was the center of social life. If you wanted to hang out with your friends, go to a restaurant, it was the temple of Artemis. In Acts 19, towards the end of Acts 19, uh, after Paul had been there and the church had been established, the craftsmen of the city led a riot there because so many people were becoming Christians through Paul's preaching they feared uh, for their livelihoods. There was a threat to their finances, there was a threat to social control, social cohesion. You've probably noticed this. If you read much history, those kinds of fears, fears about livelihood and way of life, they typically result in violence, some form of suppressive violence. We've got to cleanse, we've got to get that element out. And so Jesus, the king, commends his people. Well done. I've seen it well done I know how you've endured patiently I know you have not given in to those false apostles who were arguing for just we can we can bring a bit of Roman worship in so Gnostic teachers we actually don't have to we can spiritually love God in our hearts we can use words But our actions really don't matter go to the temple it'll be fine participate in this it's just it's just in the body what really matters is in your mind just don't give your mind to artemis don't give your soul to artemis but you can participate in that civic life it's fine i know jesus says i know you've endured twice in the space of this very tiny letter, he says, I know you've endured patiently, or patient endurance. Churches down through the centuries have found that long-suffering has to affect people. Enduring over time, difficulty, it affects Richard Wormbrunn, founder of Voice of the Martyrs, 14 years in a Romanian communist prison, explained that what he saw in communist lands were that Christians bore up pretty well in short bursts. When persecutions became really intense for a short period, what got them, what ground them down, what crushed the church was steady, long-term suffering. Even low-level, steady, steady pressure. That's what really hurt the church, the kind that calls for patient endurance. We see, you can look, just look at the globe, look at the map, and you can see the effect of this. Muslim-dominated countries, many of the Muslim-dominated countries used to be majority Christian. Before the year 1000, there were way more Christians in Persia, Iran, Iraq, Syria, North Africa, then in Europe. That was the center of gravity for the church. But Islamic persecution ground down the church. They stopped killing them. I think this is interesting. Very early on, they stopped killing them because they found that killing the Christians strengthened the church. It turned people's hearts to eternity. It turned their hearts to the everlasting realities. What worked was turning their hearts to the world, turning their hearts to comfort. Instead, they made life hard. High taxes, denial of privilege, denial of comfort, enslavement. They made them long for an easier time. They offered inducements to convert. Rather than this heavy taxation, rather than being a peasant all your life and guaranteeing your children will be peasants, just convert. And you can have a comfortable living, comfortable house. And over time, as you look at the map, most converted. And those who didn't, were also highly affected. They turned inward. The Christian churches, historically speaking, in Persia, in Iran, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, they were allowed to exist, but just not preach the gospel. They were not allowed to convert. So they turned inward. And there are, until the 20th century, there are virtually no records conversions out of Islam in those countries for about 600 years. That is, until this living Lord, this exalted Christ, began to reveal himself personally with flaming eyes, with the word of truth to come directly to those lands. And he has begun appearing. The revelation of Jesus Christ is fully underway. He is revealing himself in those lands of suffering. The point being, patient endurance affects people. It either grounds them down or causes them to turn inward. But the Ephesians were bearing up. They were bearing up. They hadn't been lured back to the comforts. They hadn't been lured to just getting along, they had endured patiently. But the danger of their hearts turning towards perishing comforts, it was real, it was there. How do we know that? Because Jesus says so. Right here he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at the first. Remember, here's the command, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The church itself, the life of the church will be removed. You're enduring but you've abandoned the love that you had at first. What was that? Well, how do we know? What what was this love they had? Well, if you flip to Acts 19, which Brooke read for us, we get glimpses. Paul stayed in Ephesus for about three years, and he began with a group of Jewish Christians from the synagogue. They'd heard Apollos' preaching. They had received the baptism of John, but they hadn't yet been baptized into Jesus. Paul arrives, baptizes them. He begins to preach in the synagogue until the synagogue becomes divided, until it becomes a faction. And then Paul took the Jewish Christians to a lecture hall, to a lecture hall, and he rented it out. It's a bit like a gym. He rented it out. Luke tells us he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that all the residents, residents of the province heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God gave power, power for miraculous work with the result that fear or awe fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus, a living powerful Lord was extolled also many of those who were now believers came confessing divulging their evil practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts or sorcery brought their books together these books of incantations spells charms and burned them in the sight of everyone we get a glimpse What does first love look like? What does the love that you had at first look like? Love leads to action. Kids coming back around, love leads to action. It shows. Love is shown by commitments. It's not just words. It's not just verbal expression. It. Love shapes life around what is loved. So, similar to what happened in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, the church is born, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, coming together for the prayers, for fellowship, sharing bread together meeting daily so similar to that that's what happens in ephesus daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. so christians and inquirers weren't going to the temple of artemis to hang out and that's what the people around noticed that's what the craftsmen noticed they're not going to artemis they're going to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. They wanted the Word. They wanted it. They wanted to hear what Jesus had done. They wanted to hear what Jesus was doing. They wanted to see what Jesus was doing there. They could see people's lives changing. They wanted to hear about it. They wanted to know about it. Hearing the love of God. Hearing the love of God, they loved God. It was the love of God, the love of God through Jesus that captivated them. And so they loved him. We love because he first loved us. We love God because when he helps us recognize the abundance that he is and that he gives, we love him. And love leads to actions. They wanted to receive the love and forgiveness of God. The message was, it's offered. The maker of the world has affection for you. Whoa. They wanted to receive it. They wanted his forgiveness. And they learned that it came when they confessed their sin. That when you unload, when you acknowledge your offenses against God, he pours forgiveness. He pours his affection and he says, yeah, I'll take that. You did that, I'll take that. And here's what you get instead, gift, my love, my affection. You get my face, you get everything that is worth having. And so they spoke it out. They publicly said, thank you to Jesus. Thank you for saving me from this. Thank you for saving me from that. Again, love leads to actions. They turned from what ensnared them by cleaning it out. These books, they took radical action, turning from this form of self-love, this form of control that they, they used. We have different forms. Maybe some of you have magic books, sorcery books. I, I do doubt it, but maybe you do. We have other forms of self-control, of, of using control and self-love and self-comfort. These people burn their books of sorcery because this was their most relied on means for avoiding trouble in life and getting what they want. Getting advantages. So when they wanted uh, an advantage in business, or they wanted to avoid getting sick when plague came, or if they were having trouble with children. I mean, if they were having trouble having children. Maybe trouble with children also. (laughs) I will cast a spell upon my child. (laughs) When they had a job opportunity, when they had a difficult boss, any difficulty... This was the everyday means of control. Spells, charms, incantations that get the aid of spirits to intervene. So this was the expression of their everyday faith. And they turned from it to Jesus because he is the source of comfort. He is the source of rest One of the gifts, the greatest gifts that he offers is you do not have to seek control because he offers rest. You don't have to strive anymore. He offers rest. They've found that Jesus is Lord over all and they can trust him and he loves them. He forgives them. He's welcomed them, Jew, Greek, to be part of his kingdom. And because he loved them, They love him back with complete attention. They loved him with lives given totally to him. Just given over. So when Jesus the king says, remember. Remember the love that you had at first. Remember from what you have fallen He's helping them see the poverty of what they've turned back to. The poverty of striving. The poverty of wearing yourself out for the things that just die. Turn back to the works you did at first. Turn back to the expression of love. They've been beaten down. They've had to endure patiently. This is good news. What I'm I'm about to say, this is good, good news. If you just look at your situation in a worldly way, and it looks like there is just no end to this, Jesus is saying, He's saying, you've endured patiently. If you will remember, if you will turn back to a life totally oriented to me, I will give you all that you need. Now, this is always the truth. This is always the truth. Jesus urges us to turn from whatever claims to be the good life and turn to the one who gives life from whatever says this is the good life, to the one who gives life. And it is especially true for every church that, that's wearing down under pressure. That's wearing down. The greatest challenge for long obedience in the same direction, just steady obedience in the same direction, is discouragement from the enemy. Discouragement. When you feel like you're the only one, and you've probably felt that from time to time, I'm the only one. When you feel like there's no end to the heaviness, there's no end to the hostility or the meanness or the ugliness that surrounds you, whatever that ugliness that is just, you're in, the enemy says, there's no end to this. This is all there is and you're alone, or when it looks like there is there is no change, and you're the only one who seems to care. You're the only one who sees it clearly. I, I alone. This is what crushed Elijah, Elijah the prophet, when the whole nation seemed to be Baal worshippers, and he, he cries out, Lord! Just kill me. I'm the only one. He's the only one who's been faithful. This is what weighed Moses down as they're wandering in the wilderness so much that he asked God, slay me. This people is too heavy for me because I'm the only one. You can hear that Satan was right there. Satan was whispering all along. But the message of the enemy is not true it's just not true the word of discouragement is not the word of god the lord says i know my sheep and my sheep know me and no one who is in my hand no one can snatch them from my hand this is the same jesus who says, I hold the seven stars in my hand and I walk among the lampstands. No one can snatch them from my hands. And to, to Elijah, remember he said, shh, 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 shh. That's, that's basically what that still small voice, shh, 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 shh. shh. It's okay. You're not alone. There are 7,000, 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. You think you're alone. I always have a remnant. I always have my people. So when you feel like you're the only one who wants God, but your strength is flagging, you're ready to give up, you're ready to just kind of go along with the world, you're not alone. You're not alone. The Lord has not left you, because He's the one who holds you, who walks among the churches. So if you want God, take a quick assessment. If you want God, if in you is this desire, I want, I do, I do want God, even this morning, I want God, it's because He's at work in you. Good news. If it's there, that's not natural. That's not natural. It's because he's at work in you. Consult. Do I want God? I think I do. He's at work in you. And if he's at work in you, he's also at work around you because that is what he does. He works in pockets, he works in groups. He brings something alive here. He brings something alive there. When a Muslim has a vision of the risen Lord Jesus, there's always someone else. There's always someone else. You can trust that if you want the word, the truth, and the life, Jesus, there are others nearby who want the same. But you won't know until you act. You won't know until you act. So this is conclusion. Do the works you did at first. It's the message to the church. The church that is enduring patiently. The Christian who's enduring patiently. This is the word. Remember the love that you had at first. Remember first love. Act. Let your desire for God be known. And I say... At risk here, demand to be taught. Demand to be taught. That means if, you, if you're not getting enough teaching, demand it. I think nothing would delight me more than if a group of you came and said, we need more teaching. You need to, you need to have a, a Thursday night Bible study. You need to teach us more because we want it. That's never happened. I would love it. Demand to be taught. Seek the word. Stir one another up to do the same. Let that, whatever that little bit of affection is, whatever that love is, let it move to action. We don't turn from our worldliness by being passive and just expecting it to happen to us. And so Jesus says, repent, turn, remember your first love. Amen. Father, you know, you know the weakness of our flesh. And so we ask, would you would you truly take that bit? A bit of affection in us that is for you. And would you, Holy Spirit, increase it, fan it into flame, and give us the power in our wills to act, to seek your face. In Jesus' name.